to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. On the surface, Psalm 4 seems so very similar to Psalm 3 that I seriously considered skipping it and coming back to it at another time. Both are psalms of lament. In other words, there is some distress that lies in the background of each psalm that provokes the psalmist's cry. Both speak of David's enemies heaping shame upon him. Both arise from some crisis in David's life that call forth the words of this psalm. Both mention peaceful sleep as the fruit of an assured faith in the Lord's sustaining grace. All of these similarities, not to mention their consecutive ordering in the Psalter, have led many commentators to suggest that they originally belonged and arose from the same event, namely Absalom's rebellion and David's flight from Jerusalem. Well, that may be true. Or Psalm 4 may arise from a completely different occasion in David's life. The renowned scholar of the Psalms, Gerald Wilson, for instance, has an intriguing hypothesis that Psalm 4 actually arises from an agricultural disaster that had struck Israel resulting from drought. And when we remember that in the Old Covenant, such conditions were not merely environmental and economic matters, they were religious matters, this begins to make a little more sense. You see, Yahweh, Israel's covenant Lord, had promised to provide Israel with rain in its seasons and to produce for them an abundant crop. He would make their land fruitful if they would but obey his voice and remain faithful to the covenant. But if they disobeyed and were unfaithful, God had sworn to them that he would make the heavens like bronze and the earth like iron and he would turn their land to dust. In Old Covenant Israel, drought was a religious issue. Therefore, when drought occurred and when famine struck, it acted as a divine call to repentance. But as we know from the history of Israel, not everyone heeded that call. Many went elsewhere, outside of Israel, to the pagan gods of the surrounding nations who promised 
fertility and fruitfulness. And in Wilson's view, then Psalm 4 is David's call to his own countrymen not to do that, not to turn to foreign gods for help, but to return in repentance to the Lord. It's an attractive hypothesis. But regardless of the precise occasion or crisis which calls forth this psalm, whether it's a drought or whether it's Absalom's rebellion or whether it's some other occasion entirely, it contains an important element that is not found in the third psalm that we studied last week. It contains a call from David to his fellow Israelites, to the covenant people, calling upon them to repent and to return to the Lord. And that's the portion of this psalm that I want to emphasize this morning because it has tremendous application for our church. David's call is not to outsiders. It's to the people of Israel. It's not to strangers to the covenant. It's to the covenant people themselves. And in their time of distress, they have abandoned their covenant God. They have turned away from the Lord. They are prodigals. They are lost sheep of the house of Israel. And David, their shepherd king, is calling them home. Well, likewise, every one of us knows someone in that prodigal condition. Probably many such people. They aren't pagans. They are not those who have no experience with the church or with God or with Christ or with the word. There was a time when they were among us. There was a time when they worshipped with us. There was a time when they had fellowship with us. They were in Sunday school with us. They went on mission trips with us. There was a time when they belonged to the covenant people, externally at least, but they have since gone out from us. They have run after foreign gods. Now these foreign gods need not be idols of wood or stone. They are gods of money, gods of pleasure, gods of materialism, gods of entertainment, gods of comfort, of recreation, of career, the god of an immoral relationship, the god of family, Or perhaps the God of a skepticism that makes them feel intelligent and part of the crowd of those who know, those free thinkers who aren't unthinking sheep like the rest of us. Whatever idol it is that they bow before, whatever idol it is that they sacrifice to, they do so because they're trying to fill some void within their heart and life. There is a drought in their soul and they are trying to find rain. They are prodigals. They are spouses, they are children, they are siblings, they are in-laws, they are friends, they are co-workers, they are neighbors. They were once in our connect groups, they once attended our services, they once professed faith in Christ, they were once baptized into the covenant community, but they're gone. And it breaks our heart. What do we do? How do we approach The prodigals. How do we think about them? How do we pray for them? How do we speak to them? How do we reach out to them? 
Well, this morning we're going to look at the way that David approached the prodigals of Israel, and we're going to use it as a model for the way that we should reach out to the prodigals in our own life, in our own circle, and maybe even in our own church. So before we begin, I want you to take just a moment, I want you to think about who that might be. Who is it that used to be among us, even if it wasn't in this church, maybe it's in your family, they used to be in the church, they used to profess faith in Christ, but they do no longer. Who is the prodigal or prodigals in your life? And I want you to keep that person or those people before the eyes of your mind as we walk through this psalm, and I want you to apply the truths that we're going to see in this psalm to your relationship with that individual. And then I want you to go out from here and I want you to call them home. Psalm 4 begins with a superscription. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. That doesn't help us in understanding the context of the psalm or the crisis which calls it forth. It does tell us that this psalm was eventually used in the worship and the liturgy of the temple. Psalm 4 is divided into four sections, and we're going to consider each one in turn. Let's look together at verse 1. David begins this psalm with a plea to God to intervene in his distress. In other words, he begins with an invocation, with a prayer, which is where we ought to begin as well. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Not only is this kind of introductory invocation typical of Psalms of Lament, but it it also displays an important truth that is essential to our topic this morning. It shows that David is not a stranger to the crisis that these same people are enduring. He's not immune from the crises which affect the prodigals that he's going to address beginning in verse 2. If the crisis is a national famine, David too is affected. He too feels the pinch of hunger. If the unrest is caused by Absalom's rebellion, David too is affected. He too was forced to flee Jerusalem barefoot, Bedraggled in shame, his family disintegrated, his throne in jeopardy. His desperate situation is demonstrated by the words that he uses in the second line, very vivid words. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. These are flexible words. He says, you have given me relief, you've expanded me when I was being constricted. David is feeling in the midst of this crisis, he's feeling suffocated. He's feeling his enemies crushing in around him on every side. And he said, Lord, I've been in situations like this before, and I have seen how you have come in and you have relieved the pressure. You have have rescued me from this suffocating crisis that I've been in, and I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to do it again. Now, why is this an important point? Why is this an important place to begin? Because it is usually, not always, but usually a crisis which provokes the prodigals to leave in the first place. 
There was some need that they had which went unmet, and they accused God of being negligent, and they blamed him for the failure, and they went and they sought the fulfillment of their needs elsewhere amongst foreign gods and false idols. And it's imperative when you're dealing with them to make them understand and realize, I've been there too. I'm not immune from the crises of this life. Yeah, but you've never prayed for God to heal your loved one and then they died anyway. Yes, we have. You've never prayed for God to save your marriage and it ended in divorce anyway. Yes, we have. You've never been through job loss or unemployment or financial stress or some prolonged and painful illness and you pray for God to take it away and he doesn't take it away. Yes, we have. You've never been alone. You've never been so lonely, forced to raise a family all by yourself. Yes, we have. All of those situations I just mentioned are represented in this church by people who are still in this church, who are still trusting in God, believing in Him for their provision of every physical, financial, emotional, material, spiritual need. This church has endured, is enduring, and will endure crisis. Crisis is not unique to your prodigal. And verse 1 shows what the faithful do in times of duress. We cry out to Yahweh for His grace and His help, and we do so on the basis of the covenant. I want you to focus on that phrase, O God of my righteousness. It's in line 1. That phrase, and the ESV gets it right, the NIV doesn't. NIV has my righteous God. That's not what it is. It's, O God of my righteousness. It's instructive, especially considering where we were last week. How can David talk about his righteousness? How can he plead his own righteousness before God? He can't. As we saw last week, David's sins were grievous, and the collateral damage was astounding, and his sin was known to all Israel. He had no righteousness of his own by which he could lay claim upon God's mercy and help in time of need. He doesn't plead his own righteousness. He pleads the righteousness of God given to him. Now, I have a reason for interpreting this verse that way. I'm convinced that that's the way the Apostle Paul would have interpreted Psalm 4 and verse 1. Why? Because David says similar things in other psalms, and Paul picks up on it. For instance, in Romans chapter 4, 6 through 8, he quotes David in Psalm 32. David knew the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and he treasured this truth. Psalm 32, verse 1, a psalm of confession. David says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And Paul picks up on Psalm 32 and he says, See, David knew the old covenant doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's not David's righteousness that forms the basis of his plea. It's God's righteousness imputed to David by faith. 
David was in covenant with God by grace through faith in the righteousness of God. And on the basis of that covenant, not his own righteousness, God's righteousness given to him in that covenant, he pleads for God's mercy and protection. And so can you. In your time of distress, as we spoke about last week, when life seems to be closing in around you, don't plead your own righteousness. That is an unstable foundation. Plead the righteousness of God. And on the basis of his covenant, seek his mercy and protection. William Plumer, the great 19th century commentator, wrote, Quote, how strong the argument is in this case. Those who have received the righteousness from God to justify and to sanctify them may very safely confide in God to save them from wicked foes. He who has done the greater will surely do the less. That sounds suspiciously like Romans 8, doesn't it? He who did not spare his own son but gave him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Your God will not fail to honor his covenant, which is rooted in the righteousness of Christ and is sealed in the blood of his beloved son. So in your crisis, you do what David did. You stand firm upon it. And then you turn to your prodigal. From David's opening invocation, we now turn to his intervention in the lives of those faithless Israelites who had forsaken their God. This intervention contains a plea, verse 2, followed by three imperatives, verses 3, 4, and 5. Let's look at the plea verse first. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now David addresses the faithless Israelites. Those are the O men directly. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? Probably refers to the fact that these faithless Israelites, they've opposed David's authority. They've scoffed at David's God. There's an antagonistic relationship between David and the people whom he is trying to reach, just like there's very likely an antagonistic relationship between you and the prodigals that you're trying to reach. Sin will do that. It drives a wedge between the godly and the ungodly. A wrong relationship with God very often results in a wrong relationship with others. The next line gets to the crux of the issue. Here's what David accuses them of. They love vain words and they seek after lies. Now, there's a couple of different ways we could take the Hebrew of this phrase. Uh, a lot can be said for the NIV's translation, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Okay? The words there can be translated in either case. Is this not the reason every prodigal leaves? They, they run off seeking after vain words, delusions, empty promises, made by false gods. That immoral relationship which promised pleasure and companionship to ease their loneliness, in the end, does it not always leave them more ravaged and plundered than it did before? 
that job that lured them away from the church with promises of wealth and prestige and promotion and a better life and more reputation? Has it not left them less content, less happy, and more stressed than they were before? False gods cannot deliver on empty promises. They speak vain words, they utter empty boasts, and our responsibility toward our prodigals is to plead with them to see the truth of this. O son, how long will you seek after vain words and run after lies? O daughter, O brother, O sister, O friend, O husband, O wife, How long will you love delusions and seek after false gods which cannot fulfill the longing of your heart? You have to point out the emptiness that their sin brings. And if they haven't come to that point of emptiness, they're not ready to hear the rest of what you have to say. David follows up his impassioned plea with three imperatives. These commands form the substance of what we need to communicate to the wayward ones in our lives. Imperative number one, consider God's salvation. Verse three, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. All right, so David has pleaded with the wayward ones to cease chasing after delusions and loving lies. Empty promises uttered by false gods. Now he commands them to consider the Lord and to consider the Lord's salvation. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. See, in contrast to the wispy, fog-like delusions of the idols, here is solid, substantial truth on which they can rest their life. No. Well, it's a great Old Testament word, and it appears all the way throughout the Psalms. We've already seen it in Psalm 1-6, yada. It refers not to intellectual knowledge, it refers to experiential knowledge. It's the way that Adam knew his wife in Genesis 4-1. It's the way that God knows the righteous in Psalm 1-6. It's covenant knowledge. It's a knowledge that has a relational aspect, an experiential aspect to it. David is doing nothing less here than calling them back to the covenant because as it stands, they are cut off off from God's covenant. They are cut off from a saving relationship to Yahweh. Why? Because there is no salvation outside of the covenant. There is salvation in no one else. So what does it mean when David says that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself? He wants them to consider this. No. Okay? Lost ones, wayward ones, prodigals, know this. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. What does he mean? To set apart the godly for himself is shorthand for all of the benefits of redemption. All of the benefits of redemption belong to the godly and only to the godly. For instance, the Lord has set apart the godly, number one, by election. He's chosen us. He's set us apart from the rest of mankind in order that he may pour out his saving affections upon us. 
Number two, he set us apart by regeneration. He's awakened us to new life and has filled us with his Holy Spirit, which has set us apart from the rest of mankind, which continues to walk in death. Number three, he set us apart by justification. He has removed us from the, from the condemnation and the mass of iniquity, and he's, he's put us into a right relationship with himself in which there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those whom he has set apart. Number four, he has set apart the godly by sanctification. He's making them different. He is, he is transforming them from the image of fallen man into the image of his own beloved son. And one day, number five, he will set apart the godly by glorification. He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. See, God's saving, redeeming love is a particular love. It is reserved for those and only those in covenant with him through Christ. Therefore, to forsake Christ is to cut yourself off from every benefit of redemption. See, sometimes we feel the need and I, I understand this, I really do. We feel the need to try to parse out whether or not the wayward brother who's gone out from us is saved or lost. We try to discern the condition of their soul. This is especially true when, when this individual gave many convincing proofs that they were one of us. I don't know how many heartbroken parents I've spoken to over the years who are utterly bewildered by the sin that their children walk in. Say, I remember when they used to love coming to church. I remember when I would walk into their bedroom at night and they would be reading their Bible. I remember when they used to talk about God in, in, in such a relational way. I remember when this was true. How can it possibly be that they've forsaken Him? Man, I understand that. But I want you to listen to me closely. It's not your job to discern whether they're saved or lost. It's your job to impress upon them the truth that if they continue in their unrepentant sin, they are cut off from the covenant. If you don't reconcile that in your own mind, you will never feel the urgency of reaching out to them. You'll never do it. You will rely upon their past profession. And you'll consider them to be saved when everything in their life points to the fact that they're not. It's not your job to discern whether or not they were born again. It's your job to recognize them by the fruits that they display now and to deal with them as such. They need you to reach out to them and plead with them to consider God's salvation, which is only for the godly, those who trust in Christ and follow him in obedience of faith. Second imperative comes in verse 4. Consider God's judgment. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent. Okay, this is an invitation to silence and self-examination, which is something our prodigals need desperately but rarely do. 
Now, there's a question as to how that first line should be translated. Maybe different in your different translations, your different versions. Okay, the issue is complex. I don't fully understand it, so I wouldn't be able to provide any clarity to you. Let me just give you a rundown of what the different translations provide for this phrase. Okay, the ESV, CSB, and NKJV say, be angry and do not sin. NIV and the New American Standard say, tremble and do not sin. The King James Version says, stand in awe and sin not. Okay, so what are they supposed to, what's David commanding them to do? Is he commanding them to be angry or is he commanding them to be afraid? I think he's commanding them to be afraid. I think that makes much better sense of the context because fear ought to be the natural result of considering the truth of verse 3, that they're cut off from the covenant, that they're underneath God's dreadful judgment and wrath. This consideration has caused more than a few prodigals to wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats. And this is a good thing We pray that their consciences would be troubled, that their souls would be convicted. We pray that they may be very afraid and that that fear may lead them to repentance. Plumer again writes, this verse's aim is to bring those addressed to a calm, serious, silent reflection and so to genuine repentance. The great difficulty with wrongdoers is that they will not consider. The quiet of the night, when all is silent and all is still, is the time to consider that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so our second job is to plead with our prodigals to consider not only the salvation of God, but his righteous judgment, to consider what it is to face him on the day of his wrath, to consider that they are but a breath away from meeting him. They are, in the words of Edwards, like a spider hanging over the flames of hell by a single thread. So precarious is their position. We need to plead with them to ponder these realities and to be silent before God. And we do so in the confident knowledge that if they will, God will meet them there. Third, it's found in verse five. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is an invitation to come home to God. You must not only tell your prodigal that the Lord makes a distinction between the godly and the ungodly, that his saving benefits are reserved only for those who are faithful to the covenant. You must not only implore them to consider their wretched estate and to silently reflect upon the precarious position of their soul before God, you also must offer them a way home. So what are the right sacrifices? You know, under the old covenant, it's not what you might think. You might be tempted to think when you see right sacrifices, offer lambs and goats according to God's prescription. And there's an aspect of that, but that is most certainly not the main thing under the old covenant. Not even David thought that. When David was crushed by the weight of his sin in Psalm 51, he wrote this, you do not delight in sacrifice, or else I would have brought it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, listen, 
are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The right sacrifices that David calls upon the prodigals of Israel to bring are repentance and faith. And it's the same today. The way home to God is the same way today as it was 3,000 years ago in David's day. It's repentance and faith in the provision of mercy given by God through Christ. Just like in the story of the prodigal son, those who will come home in a broken spirit and with a contrite heart will not be despised. Rather, they will be welcomed with the arms of grace, clothed with the robes of righteousness, given the ring of sonship, and placed at the table of fellowship. So don't just warn your wayward brother, your wayward child, your wayward spouse, your wayward friend. Call them home to a merciful God who will receive them in grace. Verses 6 and 7, David turns his attention once again to the Lord and intercedes on behalf of himself and the wayward ones who are in crisis. He says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their new wine abound. All right, so by the time we get down to verse 6, we find that the crisis, whatever it was, still exists. Okay? David's still feeling suffocated. He's still feeling restricted. And so are the people that he's calling to repentance. And so David does what all the godly do when they feel suffocated. He intercedes. He prays. While the many are saying, who will show us some good, and they've run off to false gods to try to find some good, David goes to the Lord, and he prays that God would cause the light of his face to shine upon his people. That's number six. That's the priestly benediction, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The light of God's face is God's presence to bless. Those who see his face are those who experience the blessings of God's presence. Those from whom God hides his face are those from whom God removes his blessings and pours out his curses. Even in the midst of crisis, David has a joy which cannot be taken away, a joy which those who have turned away from God know nothing of. Verse 7 is particularly striking if the crisis is a famine like Wilson thinks because David would then be saying that even though the famine is not ended, I've got more joy than if the harvest was plentiful. Why? Because my joy is rooted not in grain and new wine. My joy is rooted in God and in his promises to me. In other words, in the midst of the crisis, David doesn't feel deprived. He doesn't need material blessing because he has God. Therefore, for whom does he pray? If he has more joy in his heart than when grain and new wine abound, for for whom is he praying? He's praying for them. He prays for his suffering people. He prays for the prodigals, and so must we. When you deal with them in their crisis and you tell them that their crisis is no reason to turn away from God, 
don't minimize their suffering. Don't minimize their pain. When you deal with a single mom who's, who's tempted to jump into an immoral relationship because she's just so lonely, don't minimize that loneliness. When you're talking to someone who's enduring a, a prolonged illness and they're, they're grumbling against God and they're, they're growing faithless and you, you tell them that's no reason to turn away from God and His promises. Don't minimize their suffering because it hurts. What do you do? You pray for them. You pray that God's face would shine upon them. That God would be gracious and merciful and cause his blessing to be poured out upon them. That the Lord would show his kindness and that his kindness would lead them to repentance. Finally, in verse 8, David returns to a familiar theme. The sleep of the faithful. We talked about sleep last week. Which is interesting, isn't it? We are to urge the prodigals to sleeplessness in verse 4 as they consider their sin and God's judgment. But to those who are reconciled to God through faith in Christ, those who trust in His providential care, sleep is a sweet reward. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone make me dwell in safety. Now, I gave the last section of this sermon the title, The Incubation of the Faithful. I did that for two reasons. Number one, because it fit with my outline. Number two, though, because, and more importantly, because it said something that I wanted to convey. The righteous are not immune from suffering. We are not immune from crisis. We are incubated in the midst of crisis and in the midst of suffering. Okay? David is immersed in the very same trial as the faithless Israelites to whom he is speaking. Yet, he knows that in the midst of this trial, he is incubated by the sovereign promise, the unshakable covenant of God, which said, nothing can come upon us that does not work for our good and for his glory. So in a very real sense, sleep, like I said last week, is a test of faith. Can you take off your anxieties, cast them aside, and rest safely and securely in the arms of God's sovereignty? Can you lay your head down at night on the pillow of his providence and wrap yourselves in the blanket of his promises? Because he will not let you fall. He will never forsake you. In peace you will lie down, and in sleep, for the Lord alone will make you dwell in safety. Now, I've spent this sermon speaking to the faithful about how to address the faithless. As we conclude this morning, I want to say a word directly to prodigals who may have walked in this morning. You don't even know why. I can give you one reason why. I prayed that God would bring you this morning. You're not here by accident, you're here by providence. You identify with the prodigal son, you've been in the far country, you've found that the far country is miserable despite everything that it promises. 
You feel yourself wretched, alone, ashamed, and filthy, and you wonder if there's a way home. Let me speak to you. Number one, I know you have burdens. I know you have trials. I know you are suffering. So are we. We are not immune from all the pains of this life, but we have a God of our righteousness to whom we cry, and he hears our prayers. He will deliver in due time. So I want you to know, I know you have troubles. My question is, do you have God? Number two, I know you've been seeking after a delusion, and I hope you've come to realize that as well. The answer you are longing for is not to be found in the world. It's not to be found in the false gods of money or sex or relationships or your children or the praise and esteem of men because you were made for God and you will not know deep, true, and lasting joy until you come to know the God whom you were created to glorify and enjoy. So I urge you this morning to consider God's salvation, that he has set apart the godly for himself. Only those who love him and trust in his son are the recipients of his saving mercies. I urge you to consider God's judgment. Consider the truth that you walked in this morning a breath away from meeting your creator. And what would you have said? When you lie down upon your bed tonight, you have no guarantee that you will awaken in the morning. So I urge you to consider what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Finally, I urge you to come home because God will have mercy on you. Come in repentance. Believe that Jesus came and lived, and died, and rose again in order to save you from your sins, and come in hope, however thin it may be, God will have you. A broken and a contrite heart, He will not despise. And third, I want you to know that I pray for you. I pray that the Lord would cause his face to shine upon you. I pray that he would be gracious to you in the midst of your sufferings, in the midst of your loneliness, in the midst of your afflictions. And I pray that he would reveal himself in kindness rather than in severity. And that his kindness would lead you to repentance. There is a way home. It's through Jesus. And if you will come, he will have you.